Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Children of the Night, on our way back to our home base, our cabin in Virginia, but I'm dragging my feet because of the snow. It's gotten much better since we talked last week, but there are still some about. I've also just changed jobs. My previous one had quite a nasty commute for it, and the new one does not. The new one is involved in an educational institution, and I was able to make the change literally just before the snow started coming down for last week's snowstorm. I found out that it was called Winter Storm Jonas. However, because schools are some of the first to close during inclement weather, I had my first day at the new job, then a rather unexpected four-day weekend, during which I only went so far outside to shovel out the cars that were not yet safe to drive. Again, snow removal. Now, I bring all of that up because I do like to contemplate our genre. It's a strange genre, isn't it? Our friends at Starship Sofa like sci-fi because it's a cool setting, or there can be explorations of upcoming or futuristic technologies influence on our species or our ethics. Farfetch fables? Easy. We love the dungeon crawls, adventure of tangling with dragons, or the politics that we must maintain to keep the orc and goblin hordes at bay. But horror? What is it? There is no set setting, and in fact we do creep into the aforementioned examples of better-defined genres with some regularity. Why do we like to hear about the things that go bump in the night? You may recall that I had mentioned way back in April that I had been in a rather serious car collision, on the interstate no less. Everyone lived, and I got the worst of it physically, but mentally it left a bit of anxiety about interstate driving. Not an out-and-out fear, but an anxiety that when coupled with witnessing the errant fender bender, or worse, send my pulse racing and no doubt blood pressure up. So, here I am, the host of a rather popular horror podcast, and I've landed myself a little person demon, or terror, if you will. 
I think that when it comes down to it, we like to witness these fictitious terrors vicariously knowing that they're not coming for us, and better us than them, and our fictions usually detail something that will never happen to anyone. We know that despite wild examples in genetics and virology, we're likely never going to wind up with flesh-eating zombies, to give an example. Enough of my ramblings, let's get on to what you came for, the meat of our show, The Fiction. Our first story of the night comes from Rick Kennett. Rick is a lifelong resident of Melbourne, where he works in the transport industry, his day job, and has an interest in cemeteries, ghosts, and all things spooky. His stories have appeared in Aurealis, Andromeda Spaceways, Weird Tales, Gaslight Grimoire, Southern Blood, and more great ghost stories, co-authored with A.F. Chico Kidd of 472 Cheyenne Walk, Karnacki, The Untold Stories, Ash Tree Press, 2002. His ghost story, The Dark and What It Said, won the 2008 Dittmar Award. And now, we'll hear Rick Kennett's The Silent Garden. The card read, Dear Dodson, be so kind as to present yourself for dinner at 472 Shane Walk, no later than 7 o'clock this evening. Karnaki. I arrived at my friend's address a little before the appointed hour, and found Arkwright, Taylor and Jessop already there. We went immediately into dinner, during which every topic under the sun was discussed, except for the story we knew Karnaki had invited us to hear. With dinner over, we retired to our accustomed armchairs about the fire. Karnaki handed round the smokes, puffed a while on his pipe, then began without any preamble. I've just come back from staying at a largish house in Dorset, owned by a Mr. Orrell, a botanist of some repute. He'd wired me for an appointment, and when he came up on the day I fixed, he told me how his house, or rather the garden to the east side of his house, was haunted by a queer sort of silence. It's like a complete cancellation of all sound, Oral explained. And when this happens, the whole house grows cold, and there's a feeling of being watched through the walls by something horrible and evil. That's absurd, I know, but it is exactly what is happening. I assured him it did not seem absurd at all. And though I did not say this to him then... What he had described could be the symptoms of an abnatural danger. At the same time, I thought of half a dozen natural explanations, any one of which I was quite prepared to find at the bottom of the matter. I returned with Oral to Dorset by train the next day. It was late afternoon when we arrived at his house, a big rambling structure of tacked-on wings, a large greenhouse and spacious grounds. Oral was living there alone for the present, he had moved his wife and children, along with the servants, to a cousin's place in Kent. "'This infernal silence in the garden has made me just that anxious,' he said. I agreed that that was a wise thing to do until the matter was cleared up. The garden looked to be a quite ordinary rectangle of cultivated ground, about fifteen hundred feet square, hard by the east side of the house, near the kitchen door. It was, as I discovered, the only piece of land around the house not totally dedicated to Oral's study of botany. This plot supplied the kitchen with vegetables, yet even this did not allow it to escape completely the needs of Oral's botanical researches, as it was bordered on all sides, including a grown-over trellis gate, 
by a low hedge made up of various colourful and exotic bushes and flowers. It was a most tranquil scene. "'Don't let it fool you,' said Oral. "'A queer sort of thing to say,' I thought at the time, "'as though he were accusing the garden of deception. "'We brought chairs out and sat by the edge, "'smoked our pipes and waited for the dusk. "'Oral had told me how the kitchen maid "'had been the first to experience the silence. "'One evening, while picking tomatoes from the garden, "'she had come over quite cold, "'and with this all sounds suddenly ceased from the garden.' from traffic along the nearby road, even the wind in the trees, and at almost the same moment she was overwhelmed by the sensation of being watched from above. She cried out, but no one heard her. In fact, she could not even hear herself until she ran screaming back into the house. There were many similar instances over the next few weeks, involving sudden drops in temperature, accompanied by the feeling of being watched through the stone walls of the house by some invisible monstrosity, and each time it occurred there would be an absolute silence in the garden, a complete cancellation of all sound, as Oral had put it. These were the things which went through my mind as the sun went down, and the shadow of the house crept over us. Can you understand how it felt sitting there, waiting and thinking those thoughts? I felt we should be reasonably safe outside the boundaries of the garden should anything extraordinary occur. But just as the afternoon was deepening into dusk, I made the first and eighth signs of the Samar ritual at each corner of the garden. Oral watched me do this. And you know, I think it was only then that the potential enormity of what we might be meddling with really hit him. He asked what I thought this silence might be, and in what way it could be dangerous. As it was still early in the case, I made no speculations, which, as you know, is my rule. Instead, I answered his inquiries by telling him about that hideous black veil case, and he began to see then in what way this garden could be dangerous to both body and soul. When night fell and nothing had happened, except for the opening of some rare night-blooming flowers in a ring round the hedge border, we went inside and had supper, but barely was the meal begun when a queer shiver ran through the house, and the air grew cold. "'That's it!' Oral cried." and his face went very pale. It's happening. We took up our lanterns and went to the kitchen door. What we could see of the garden in the darkness appeared normal enough, and Oral said as much as we stood at the door, but his voice sounded faint and distant, even though he was at my elbow, and our lantern beams seemed powerless to illuminate anything beyond that low hedge border. It was as though the darkness were absorbing the light. Then... For all of his apparent funk, Oral wanted to get a closer look at what was happening. "'No, by God, no!' I said, having to yell to be heard above the smothering silence. With some inner sense I could feel something out there watching us. Something big and spiritually foul was in the centre of that malevolent silence. Can you understand that? To go out there without proper protection, I told Oral, could be death, and more than death.' So we stood in the doorway, scared but unwilling to run, and all the while the silence continued and deepened until finally it seemed to be taking our breath away. So we retreated to the far side of the house where the atmosphere was thankfully normal. There I prepared a photographic plate, and I can say I was truly glad of Oral's help and company when I brought my camera back to the kitchen door. The silence simply throbbed up at us, 
as sure and as beastly as any of the sounds the outer monstrosities are capable of making. I took the photograph by flashlight, and although it flared and blinded us momentarily, it had made no penetration of the darkness in the garden. After that, we hastened back to the other side of the house, where we had our rooms, but I lay awake most of the night, unable to rest, and it was not until nearly dawn that I finally got a spell of sleep. Later that morning I inspected the east garden. The silence had been so physical, you know, that I was surprised that not a cabbage leaf or pea pod had been touched by whatever monstrosity had been there last night. When I developed the previous night's photograph, it showed mostly darkness, despite the extra flash powder I had used. After lunch I left the house, as I needed to get certain materials necessary to build a defence, for I intended to experience this queer silence at first hand by spending the coming night in the centre of the garden. When I got back to the house, it was only a couple of hours off sunset, and there was much to be done. With Oral's help, I cleared an area of the garden of its vegetation, though of course careful of the exotic blooms of the hedge borders. As soon as this was done, I advised him to return indoors before I set to constructing the defence. This he refused to do, and instead asked to stay and join me in the experiment. I warned him seriously of the peculiar dangers we would be facing. Nevertheless, he wanted to stay. It was, as he said, his garden and his haunting. He wanted to see it through. While Oral unwrapped the special candles I had bought that day, I traced out a circle of twenty-one foot diameter in the earth, then placed the candles at evenly spaced intervals along it, and lit them, going counterclockwise. Inside this ring of candles, I laid down a circular linen ground sheet of a very particular weave, and on it began to assemble the electric pentacle. Before all the vacuum tubes were fitted into place around us, I made the eight signs of the Sama ritual at the eight chief compass points of the candle circle, then stepped back inside the pentacle, with the final tube in place and the batteries connected up the weak blue glare of the intertwining tubes shone around us. Now there was nothing to do but wait. We sat back to back so that between us we would have a complete view of our surrounds. We had left lanterns burning in the kitchen, and its door stood out bright against the darkness, which, in a funny way, I found comforting. Not long after sunset it grew cold, at this, Oral became tense and nervous, but I assured him this was merely the cold of the night, and suggested we button up our coats. After that, neither of us spoke again until nearly ten o'clock, when the hairs stood up on the back of my neck. A bitter chill settled on us, despite our warm clothes, and as this happened, my ears began to block up, little bit by little bit, as if sound were being taken away piecemeal. That's an extraordinary thing to say— but that was just how it felt. It must have been happening to Oral as well, for at that very moment he half-turned and said something which sounded muffled and distant. The silence was upon us, and with it the sense of being watched by some presence, some vile intelligence that was thinking it had got us. I had the queer fancy it was standing over us and looking down, yet all we could see above us were the stars. 
Within a few minutes the light from the candles began to fade, and even the glow of the electric pentacle now seemed to be struggling against an encroaching darkness. The dim outlines of trees and of the house itself, less than fifty feet away, were utterly lost. Then beyond the candle circle appeared vague globular shapes like great drops of oil or fat suspended in space, lifting and dropping in a slow drift around us. Sometimes they stretched into huge teardrops and sometimes flattened into jellyfish-like things, and the more I watched them the more certain I became that they were increasing in number, multiplying outward into the dark, perhaps to infinity. As this was happening I could feel the continuing weight of the silence outside, pressing in to crush us. For quite half an hour more nothing else occurred. Then abruptly the glow of the electric pentacle reduced further, and I lost sight of the candle flames. Although I shall never be sure of this, I thought at the time that other shapes were now moving in the garden, indefinite shadows swaying in a grotesque dance against the darkness. With this came a sense of being stifled, as if it were the silence and the darkness, as a semi-solid we were breathing into our lungs. Do I make myself clear? Another short time passed without further incident. Then, gently, very gently, the ground began to tremble. Even as I realised this, the vibrations grew more distinct and rhythmic, like approaching footsteps. Oral jumped up. I shouted at him to stay within the pentacle, but it was like yelling into folds of wool. In an instant he was over the barely glimmering tubes and plunging into those globular circling shapes. They flexed and dilated as he hit them, and stretched after him like pointing fingers, forming a sort of tunnel. As I watched him disappear down the tunnel, certain of the larger globular shapes surged back and crashed over the candle circle like an ocean wave, continued over the linen ground sheet, and dashed against the pentacle, engulfing its remaining light. At this I fairly yelled with funk, knowing how near impossible survival would be if I followed Oral, and how sure my death would be if I stayed. Covering my head with my arms, I leapt over the pentacle. As I did so, something inside me wrenched sickeningly. It was the psychic pain, that dreadful soiled feeling of the spirit experienced when in too close a contact with the monstrosities of the outer circle. Immediately after that, there followed a sensation of timelessness, if you can understand what I mean. I had jumped, but I had not hit the ground, was in fact suspended amid those vile globular things, so it seemed to me, forever, without feeling, nor sight, nor especially hearing. Then, of a sudden, I did hear something, a shout, a physical noise, Jove, can you imagine it, a sound, any sound, in the middle of that all-enveloping, evil silence. It was only then I hit the ground and fell headlong. I can tell you I wasted no time getting to my feet and running for the lighted oblong of the kitchen door maybe thirty yards away. As I ran, I knew I could hear myself again, and looking over my shoulder, saw the candles and the blue glow of the electric pentacle. I found Oral picking himself up from where he'd sprawled into his prize rare blooms ringed around the edge of the garden. His face was bloodless with shock, and he looked very unsteady, as I undoubtedly did. To get back to the light in the kitchen was a blessed relief, and we compared our experiences over several whiskies. Oral apparently had actually made it halfway to the edge, when he felt himself being picked up and hurled to the ground by some brutal force. Yet he said that even as this was happening, 
he still felt he was running, could in fact see himself racing over the garden and yelling silently while those globular shapes stretched and pointed after him. The next he knew, he was flung into one of his rare bushes, crushing it to sap. We were still awake when the dawn came. The blue light of the pentacle was barely visible in the strengthening daylight, and all the candles had guttered and gone out. But what I was chiefly interested in was the damage done by Oral's fall into the hedge. During our talking I had begun to form a theory as to how we had been saved, and what in fact had caused this business in the first place. I asked Oral about the various species of plant making up the border, and took note of their coloration, especially the bands of purple and red night-blooming flowers which ran right round the hedge. Telling him to trust me, I hired some men from the local village to grub up the entire hedge, replanting most of it in scatterings around the ground. I explained to Oral how I believed the combination of colours, particularly the violet and red blooms, and the species of the various bushes and flowers making up the hedge, had produced a focus for the monstrosities of the outer circle to enter our world. I'm not sure he understood, but he gritted his teeth at the destruction of some of his rarer plants, which, according to the Sigzand manuscript, have the power of extreme magic. Plants like Hepsleave and Mordice, for example. After this was done, I stayed a few nights more at the house, and although the garden was quiet, it was no longer silent. Karnaki came to the end of his story, and tapped his pipe out into the fire. "'But how did the damage to the head save you and Oral?' Jessop asked. "'Simply by distorting the focus,' Karnaki replied. "'Disturbing, if you like, the colour and plant magic patterns.' which created it. Given time, it would have re-established itself. All the same, the disruption of the focus probably saved us both from a pretty horrible end. What was it in the garden? Arkwright asked. And why did it manifest itself as a silence? That I cannot readily answer. All I can say for certain is that it had what we would call an intelligence, and that it was aware of us. Its purpose was plainly to break into this world— and it regarded us, spiritually, as its food. It was a narrow squeak, perhaps not just for Oral and myself, if you recall what I told you about the grunting man experiment. As to the trembling of the ground I described as being like footsteps, it might have been some part of the manifestation, though I doubt they were actual footsteps. As to the silence, perhaps there were certain vibrations which could not penetrate this window, as you might call it, sound and light being two such. Then again, perhaps the silence too was part of the manifestation. We have yet to scratch the surface of what there is to know in this field. How significant were the colour combinations? asked Taylor. Very significant, said Karnaki. Colour can be a defence against, or an attraction to, the monstrosities. Blue is the best defensive colour, which is why I use it in the electric pentacle. Violet and purple are the most dangerous colours, and they were present in circling bands of flowers in the hedge. To add to this, I later found groups of red and orange blooms, two more colours attractive to the outer monsters, in key positions along the hedge, with a lack of blue anywhere which might have counterbalanced it. Then there were the very species of plants. Quite an unhealthy mixture altogether, eh? Yes, I said. But even though it was a most unlikely chance to combine those things in just that way, 
If it happened once, it could happen again. There could be other gardens. There could be. There could indeed. He stood up. Out you go. I want to sleep. In that familiar way, he ushered us out onto the embankment, and we went pondering the powers of plants and colours to our various homes. That was Rick Kennett's The Silent Garden, as read by Paul S. Jenkins. Paul is one of the three Pauls who hosts the fortnightly skeptical podcast, Skepticule. Paul writes the skeptical blog, Notes from an Evil Bernie, and his science fiction podcast novel, The Platone. Revisionist is available for free from audiobooks.com. Thank you, Paul. Our next story comes from Paul Kane, who we've heard from several times recently, and at least once more in a week to come. Paul Kane was born in the town of Chesterfield, Derbyshire, UK, in 1973, and grew up on an estate not too far away. The son of a miner and a former secretary, Paul developed a taste for the strange and outlandish at an early age, after his granddad read him a bedtime story about the mysterious house that dwelt within a sea of fog. In his early teens, he discovered the joys of horror, science fiction, and fantasy literature, raiding the local second-hand bookshops for anything and everything associated with these genres. Paul read insatiably, often sneaking away during school dinner hours to lose himself in the pages of such tomes. Paul has a very detailed biography on his website, which is, of course, linked in the show notes. He has an enormous collection of writing accomplishments, more than we could recount here. However, most recently, his new novel from SST Publications, Blood Red, is now available. And I imagine by now you have taken my advice, gone to his website, and checked out the Hellraiser stuff. Tonight's story from Paul Kane is remote. The office building looks much the same as any other an amalgam of glass and metal and concrete existing in the same space. But it hides dark, dark secrets. Every weekday for the last ten years he has trod its drab corridors, used its lifts and sat in its offices to do his job. Ten years, ever since they found out about him. He is walking to his office right now, following the directions, though he'd know the way blindfolded. First thing Monday morning, and his observers will be waiting for him, ready to give him his brief to run down the company's mission statement. The man takes in very little of his surroundings, as little as possible, in fact. They're meant to be drab, after all. No pictures on the walls or fancy patterns here. No distractions. At last he comes to his own office. The number on its varnished wooden door reads G-786. It is not the room number. It is, in fact, his name. Not the name he was christened with, you understand, but the one they gave to him. The one he is known as at work. The one he has begun to think of as his true moniker. He has no idea what the letter or the numbers mean. It's quite possible that his superiors have no idea either, but it is his. It belongs to him. Grasping the smooth metal knob, he opens the door. 
Inside is a fair-sized rectangular table, around which his observers are seated. There are three of them, and never the same ones twice. A stocky man with bad teeth and a crown of grey-white hair, a very tall, light ginger man with octagonal glasses, who has the annoying habit of blobbing his tongue in and out like a reptile tasting the air, and a middle-aged woman with a kindly face. As is evidenced by the building itself, though, looks can be very deceptive. The closest to him, tall ginger, rises first, He doesn't say anything. He just points to a manila file at the head of the table. G-786 nods and sits down in front of the file, opening it up to glance inside. The first thing he sees is a color photograph of a man dressed in military garb, peak cap and sunglasses. There's a name at the bottom and a short bio. G-786 doesn't take any of this in. There's really no need. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. He doesn't much care anymore. 
One guerrilla leader is much the same as another, and he doesn't need to know the ins and outs, the justifications, if indeed there are any. All he needs to know is the country, a vague idea of the whereabouts. He flips through the other papers and finds a map of the area, fairly detailed, though not as detailed as the satellite pictures that come next, pinpointing buildings, guards, watchtowers. The place where this target is located is like a fortress. It would take an expert in security and special operations to infiltrate its defenses, and even then a successful strike could not be guaranteed, plus a highly trained operative would almost certainly be lost. No, it was much better this way, much more convenient, much easier for them. As for what it was doing to him, well, that didn't really enter into the equation, did it? Last but not least, there's a scrap of material pinned to the back of the file. This had been very difficult to acquire, cut from one of the target's old uniforms. G-786's fingers hover over the square of khaki, but then they withdraw, as if almost touching a flame. Not yet, not yet. They allow G-786 a further ten minutes or so to look through the reports again. He doesn't really read them, just shuffles through them for the sake of appearances. It's expected of him, so he obliges. He has no choice. So, when you're ready, says the stocky man. Ready? He is never ready. G-786 nods, and Thin Ginger walks over to the window to close the blinds. The slats slice into the bright morning sunlight for a moment, striping the gray walls white and yellow momentarily. Then all the brightness goes away. Tall Ginger finally takes his seat again as G-786 passes his hands over the papers, his fingers now seeking out the scrap of material at the back. He closes his eyes and allows the sensations to develop, stops fighting what is supposed to come so naturally. It always starts off with a tunnel, a rolling spiral of colors, of reds, golds, blues, greens, twisting round and round. He accesses this without any problems at all, letting the tunnel take him away, lead him in the direction his mind needs to travel. At certain points, there are crossroads and intersections, but he instinctively knows which ones to avoid and which to take. The feel of the cloth acts like scent to a hunting dog, linking him to his target, allowing him to cut across great distances in the blink of an eye. The arrival is always slightly more disorienting. It's instantaneous, and he's thrown back into the world without warning or at least a piece of him is. He sees the base now, the one from the photograph. He slips past alarms and guards without being seen, because there isn't really that much of him to be seen, and he carries on following his senses. He begins to rub the fabric between thumb and forefinger now, centering in on the man from the photograph, passing through walls, through locked doors without a second thought. Then here he is, in a room not much bigger than his office. G-786 recognizes the target immediately. 
he is sat talking to another man in a language G786 doesn't understand. It doesn't matter really what they're saying. All that matters is that a sighting has been confirmed. G786 knows what has to come next, even though he dreads it. In his present form, it is simplicity itself to enter the target's body. The method has been left entirely up to him. It can be slow and painful, such as an internal bleed, or fast and merciful, like the popping of a brain cell here or there. But whichever course of action is taken, one thing is for certain. He must exit the body before it is over, or risk being trapped inside forever. It must be done, though. No matter how much he wavers, G-786 knows this. He wants to get it over with as quickly as possible, and so goes for the swifter option. G-786 ingratiates himself into the target's head, and yet he still hesitates just before doing the deed. Even after all this time, there's still a part of him that... No, he mentally shrugs this off. No room for a conscience, for emotions. He continues with the operation. A tweak here, a tweak there. Then he gets out. The other man in the room is quite surprised by what happens next. His superior suddenly clutches his forehead, eyes clicking backwards in their sockets, and falls out of his chair onto the floor. There's an effort made to save him, naturally, and physicians are even called in to help, but none of it will do any good. G-786 hangs around just long enough to make sure his mission has been completed successfully, as if there was ever any doubt, and then departs, searches out the tunnel once more for the return journey. Back in the office, his eyes snap open. It's done, he tells them. That day, he is assigned two more cases with long breaks between each one before being allowed to clock out. The first is a senior politician who has risen in the ranks far too quickly and is becoming far too idealistic for their liking. The second is an intelligence operative who has defected to the other side, whatever the other side is supposed to be these days. Now it's time to leave. G-786 walks to his maroon car in the lot and climbs inside. He pulls out into traffic on the main road, then begins the half-hour drive to the place he calls home, although the significance of the word has long since shriveled away into nothing. Once, long ago, it had actually meant something, but that was before he'd been forced into the program ironically by threatening to tear his home life apart. Before his talents had been detected by a routine screening, and before they had enhanced his basic abilities with a daily cocktail of drugs. At first it had been just spying missions, the usual stuff for national security, finding out plans and schemes before they could be used, locating enemy safe houses and monitoring the movement of certain key individuals, it hadn't been hard work. In fact, he'd almost found himself enjoying it. Not many people could do what he did, and at least he was putting it to good use for the good of his country. He was also being compensated adequately for his trouble. Looked after. But then they started to talk about pushing him further, to see what else he was capable of. 
to train him in other methods and techniques, the kind that weren't so palatable or easy to excuse, to send him on jobs that took a little piece of him away every time he returned, that left him feeling cold and numb afterwards, a shadow of a man. His car journey mirrors the ones he's taken invisibly that day, except instead of a tunnel there's a road. Still, the junctions and turn-offs are the same. One of these brings him to his house, a pretty white abode with net curtains in the windows and hanging baskets over the front door. G-786 opens the garage door with the remote control on his keyring and parks the car inside. He can get to the house proper through a side door which opens out into the kitchen. On the hob is a boiling pan, steam rising in spirals to touch the ceiling. His wife is cooking spaghetti again, as always on a Monday. He hears singing, sweet singing, that should touch his heart, coming from the hallway, and suddenly she is at the kitchen door, even dressed in jeans and an old sweatshirt. She looks so beautiful, her long dark hair cascading onto her shoulders like a waterfall. She blinks with those wide eyes and tries to smile. It's not the smile of yesteryear, the smile that first attracted him to her, that he fell in love with so long ago. This is a smile worn away by heartache and pain. Hello, Simon. That's G-786's real name. It feels as alien to him now as the house he's in, the woman standing in front of him. She walks across to the hob, turns it down a fraction, then continues across to him. Hello, Amy, he says eventually. Even her name is pretty, but you'd hardly think so the way it comes out of his mouth. She rises to kiss him on that mouth now, applying pressure but receiving none in return. He doesn't even put his arms around her, doesn't hold her the way he used to. She pulls away from him and returns to the cooker. Dinner won't be much longer. Why don't you sit down? G-786 takes a seat at the kitchen table and listens as Amy makes small talk about her day, about the friends she's seen and the things she's done. None of it really interests him. Then, as she's serving up dinner, Amy asks him how his own day has been, after all this time, she still thinks he works for a finance company. He mumbles the usual, fine, but doesn't go into any details. And while they eat, she keeps looking at him, trying to find an answer, find some clues. She used to be able to tell what he was thinking by just looking at him, looking into his eyes. Now she sees only a miniature reflection looking back. As usual, she wonders why he has gradually grown so distant, how the man she married could have become the person sitting there now. Had it been something she'd done? Had he gone off her? The fact that she couldn't bear him a child? Or maybe his love had just dwindled away, eroded over time? That evening they watched the television. He has no preference doesn't laugh at the sitcoms anymore, doesn't cheer at the football or get passionate about the news reports. He just lets it all wash over him. And they sit there together on the couch like strangers, 
Amy trying to snuggle up to him and getting nowhere. It's the same in bed. They undress, climb inside. She makes the first move, hoping against hope, but he presents his cold back to her. Why doesn't he care anymore, she wonders. If only he'd care. If only he'd love her. Instead, he sleeps, a mechanical action, a robot recharging. Amy herself lies awake for hours, worrying about what has happened to her marriage and what might happen in the future. One thing is for sure, they cannot carry on like this forever. In fact, they only have to carry on like this for another two weeks. G-786 reports to the office on a Thursday morning this time. He is assigned one mission, the assassination of a scientist about to uncover a secret that might mean the end of civilization as we know it. Being as it's such a civilized world to begin with, before the alarms go off. There are only two observers in his office today for a change, a puffy-faced man with triangular shoulders and a slender woman with long blonde hair, and they both rush out into the corridor. G-786 follows, but more slowly. They all believe there's been some sort of attack on the building, that some intelligence somewhere has discovered its true nature and detonated a bomb. As it turns out, the wailing throb of the siren is simply an ordinary fire alarm. A soon-to-be-very ex-employee has thrown a cigarette into a waste-paper bin in one of the downstairs offices without checking whether it was properly out. The offices are meant to be a non-smoking environment anyway, so this was his first mistake. The cigarette has set fire to the rubbish inside, which in turn has set fire to a desk beside it and the carpet on which it rests. After the local smoke alarm went off, somebody smashed the larger fire alarm on the wall, and this is what's causing the panic. The sprinklers come on eventually. The standard procedure in any emergency is to get out and ask questions later. So this is what occurs. G-786 and his supervisors do not risk the lifts. Instead, they join a group of other workers making their way down the stairs. None of G-786's fellow numbers are panicking as such, only their observers. They make it outside safely and stand around in the car park, unsure of what to do next. It takes 20 minutes for the cause of the accident to be discovered and dealt with by internal security. There is no way the proper authorities can be alerted. Who knows what they might see inside there? The culprit is identified, not long afterwards, and detained— but the powers that be decide that all other staff might as well take the rest of the day off and return in the morning fresh. This will give security time to make doubly sure the building is safe and fit for the workers. This is how G-786 comes to be driving home at such an early hour on a Thursday afternoon. He takes the same route as always and makes very good time because there isn't much traffic. He uses the remote and parks his car in the garage, then enters his house through the kitchen door again. The kitchen is empty this time. He walks through into the hall and then checks the living room. Amy is not there. G-786 doesn't call out. He simply goes upstairs to use the toilet. While he's up there, he checks to see if his wife is around. 
She isn't in either of the bedrooms or the study. He uses the toilet and flushes. G-786 knows that Amy sometimes goes out in the day. He doesn't know where, because he doesn't really listen when she tells him things. To a friend's house, probably, or shopping. He doesn't care. Or at least he shouldn't. Except it's strange to return home and not find her there. Every day since they've been married, she's been there to greet him when he walks through the kitchen door. Back when they'd first started living together, he used to sweep her up in his arms and kiss every available inch of her face. Why is he thinking about that now? He doesn't usually. He shouldn't. Could it be that... that he misses her being there? That emotions he thought he'd suppressed? That the thought had been driven out of him by months and months of doing what he now did were actually still there and had been all along? He shook his head. He, you couldn't afford to think, to feel, to care. Not when you ended people's lives for a living. Not when you were a number rather than a name, a tool rather than a man, a weapon. On his way back to the stairs, he finds himself pausing outside the bedroom they share. He enters this again. What, is he tired? Does he need to lie down? No. G-786 walks around the bed as if he'd never seen it before. It is a bed they sleep in together, inches apart, and yet it might as well be miles. The miles he travels to take out a... On the bedside table, on Amy's side, a photograph he hasn't looked at in a long time. He has tried not to. Their wedding day. G-786 and Amy smiling, laughing as the crowd throws confetti on them. He knows that he was there that day, but it still seems like another man's memory. Actually, it is another man's memory, isn't it? Simon's. G-786 goes over to the picture, touches the frame with his fingers, touches the glass, hopes that just as he can travel distances, he might somehow also be able to travel through time, back to that day, to experience it all over again, just to remember what it felt like. Why? Why bother? What was the point? What would it achieve? Certainly wouldn't alter his reality. But it's too late. He needs to see Amy now, if only for his own sake. She'll be back soon, he tells himself. Then he can see her all he wants. That's not the same, though. She'll be here with him. It was never the same when she was here. G-786 just needs to look upon her face without her knowing. It's a bizarre thing to admit, but true. He can't explain it either, nor why he is now going to the window to close the curtains, going over to the wardrobe to get something out, a piece of her clothing, a dress, a skirt, a blouse, a jumper, one of her favorite fluffy jumpers. She wears this all the time when the cold weather's here. G-786 grabs hold of it and sits back down on the bed. He concentrates, rubbing the material between his thumb and fingers. G-786 closes his eyes and enters the rainbow tunnel, the bright multicolored conduit. He zips up roads, turns off junctions, but doesn't have to go that far this time. His wife is not in another country, 
or on the other side of the world. She's in the next town. He arrives outside a building, tall and brown. Doesn't really recognize the place, but knows she's inside. He senses her. It's strange, but G-786 thinks little of it. He just enters via the nearest wall, passing through bricks and mortar like a ghost, and enters a wide-open space with a counter on one side and a set of chairs on the other. Ignoring the rest of it, he travels up these stairs without ever having to touch one of them. He flies up through level after level, up and down corridor after corridor, until at last he comes to a door. It's one of many, but it's the only one he sees. There's a number on the outside, very much like the one on his office door at work, except this one says, 505. This time it's a room, rather than a person's number. G-786 passes through it. Once inside, he sees his wife, but wishes to God, if there is a God, that he couldn't. She's in a room, in a bed, and she's not alone. A man, G-786 doesn't recognize him, is on top of her. The sheets that cover the bottom half of his body are rising with him, slowly, gently, tenderly. Amy's hands are clutching his back, stroking the skin, digging her nails in as he speeds up. Now he's kissing her as he works, his lips brushing neck and cheeks. Amy's head flops to one side, and G-786 can see her face. What's the matter? You wanted to see her face, didn't you? Only not like this, not like this. Amy is in the throes of ecstasy, and G-786 feels almost sick. A whirlwind of buried emotions are churning up inside him, where before there was nothing, or almost nothing, he now feels love, jealousy, anger, betrayal, hatred, and above all, envy. Yes, envy. He, G-786, Simon, wants to be in that bed with Amy as he once was, as he could have been all those many, many nights when he turned her away, ignored her, forced her to seek comfort in the arms of another, forced her to find someone whom she could love, and who would love her, give her what Simon could not, warmth, humanity even. It is too much for him to bear. No sooner has he thought about it than he is there, inside the body of this stranger screwing his wife. Simon can feel the beating of the man's heart faster and faster. How easy it would be to just squeeze that muscle until it burst but he isn't going to do that. He has other things in mind. Amy looks up at the slick, rugged face above her. She's never felt so alive in her life, well, not since she and Simon used to, but suddenly something is wrong with the picture. Will, for that is the name of the man she finally gave herself to after months of resisting, is grimacing, not because he's about to finish, but because of something else. His sweet, handsome face is swelling up, forehead bloating, eyes bulging, and now his body is following suit, shoulders inflating and skin stretching taut. 
He rolls away and gets up off the bed. She watches as he staggers about there, clutching his head, his chest, his whole torso, in fact, not knowing where to put his hands first or what help they could possibly be when they got there. A trickle of blood is running from the corner of his mouth, then another down his nose. He begins to convulse, crying out in agony as spasms plague his now unrecognizable body. It is only after Will explodes that Amy starts to scream. Bits of him adorn the walls, the furniture, and her. Free of the stranger, Simon looks down at his wife, the woman he loved, splattered in redness and screaming. He has done that, and he will do more besides. For he's not really a person at all, is he? He's a number, a tool, a weapon. And this is what he does. Monday morning. G-786 called in sick for the last day of the previous week, but he's back at work now. He drives to the offices in his car and parks it in the car park. He takes a lift and walks down the corridor to his office. Inside there are three people waiting. A small man with curly hair, a bearded man with enormous ears, and the woman with a long pointed nose. They are his observers for the day. The man with large ears rises and points to the file at the front. G-786 sits down and examines the pictures inside. He doesn't really look at them, doesn't need to. Just needs a vague idea of the location and the piece of material at the back. They give him time to look anyway, and then the small man closes the blinds. When you're ready, says Curly Hair. And he is ready now. Oh, so ready. They wait as G-786 shuts his eyes and rubs the material. They wait for him to join them back in the real world again, for him to open his eyes, to tell them the mission was a success. But all he says when he eventually returns is, It's done. It's done. That was Paul Kane's remote, as read to us by Martin Raito. In a variegated working life, Martin has been a parent, a technical writer, a software developer, a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, symphony musician, and, and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Thank you again, Martin. That will be our show for the evening. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.